This training is part of a governance series that Resolve have developed to prepare board members and leadership to be better equipped for the governance journey. This resource has been prepared as much as possible to be generic and useful across the wide range of not-for-profit enterprises across the social sector globally. Resolve is a specialist governance consulting firm that operates worldwide in the areas of building healthy governance and management practices in not-for-profit organisations. These training modules delivered by Resolve seek to improve governance practices and are presented in a conversation-style podcast format so that they're accessible to board members and leaders wherever they find themselves. You might like to listen to these topics as a group and discuss them or listen to them on your own in the car or at home. Our hope is that in providing a flexible format, board members and leaders alike can engage with this material and that it can lead to better board governance. Today we're discussing six essential governance practices that a board performs. But first, let's establish why governance is so important to a not-for-profit organisation. Good governance is important to the health of an organisation, helping provide the strong foundations and framework for the organisation to thrive and contribute strategically, impacting our world for good. Not-for-profits form part of the social sector. Much of our own individual lives, the media and society revolve around social aspects or relationships, which is also the case for not-for-profit organisations. If not-for-profit organisations simply try to adapt a corporate framework to their organisations, it's not going to satisfy the relationship-centred needs of a not-for-profit community. The community governance framework that's been developed by Resolve is centred around developing healthy relationships through the organisational policies and processes we employ. This centrality of relationships through shared purpose, values and vision is integral for not-for-profits establishing and maintaining a healthy organisation. To learn more about Resolve's community governance framework for building healthy not-for-profit organisations, please pay a visit to the Resolve website at resolve.consulting. Now, let me introduce you to the first of our six governance practices, agenda planning. I can remember going to board meetings where there was no formal agenda. The agenda was essentially a read-through of the minutes of the previous meeting. It was so demotivating to sit there and have to relive the previous meeting blow by blow. As the minutes secretary slowly read out the minutes, every meeting followed the same routine, meeting after meeting. You never really felt like you were making progress or moving on to talk about the real issues that the board needed to deal with. Way down at the end of the meeting was the new business section. Most of the time you never made it that far in the meeting having to resign yourself to the reality that next month you would all have to come back and relive this process, hoping that you might make it to the new business at some stage. Also, between reading each item in the last meeting's minutes, the chairman would ask whether anyone had anything else they needed to say about the issue, or whether everyone was happy for the meeting to move on. That process would often lead to unhealthy practices, like someone trying to reopen decisions from the previous meeting, if they felt they didn't get their way, or arguments about a change in the wording of a minutes, or other behaviours that ended up crippling the meeting's progress. Having a clear agenda with priority given to matters for decision and discussion over matters for information is critical for effective governance. Decisions made in board meetings significantly influence the success or failure of an organisation. 
Board meetings have the potential to be unfocused and unproductive, which is why agenda planning is so important. By setting an effective agenda, you're setting the tone for an effective meeting. To help your board members best prepare for the meeting, set and distribute the agenda, as well as board papers, early. This gives board members the opportunity to read and process the materials prior to the meeting. This way they can also come ready to make decisions and work through important discussion matters. The agenda is best prepared by the chair in close consultation with the CEO or senior operational leader if your organisation doesn't use the term CEO. This might be a principal of a school, executive officer or a lead volunteer. The board chair and CEO's relationship is instrumental to the success of the organisation. Very little can be achieved if this relationship's not healthy. There are lots of great ways to get creative with your board agenda. At Resolve, we've seen some excellent practices in putting together board agendas and papers to make it easier for board members to engage with the board materials and for the meeting to flow well and give priority to matters for decision and discussion. Some of the ideas we've collected on our travels include an agenda where the business of the meeting was deliberately grouped under the heading areas of matters for decision, then matters for discussion, and finally matters for information. Matters for information were generally operational updates and information from the CEO that was important to share as it provided great feedback to the board on the success of programs towards the vision of the organisation, but really didn't require active board engagement. Another agenda was put together in a landscape format, rather than portrait format, with columns added to the agenda to show links to the associate board members, proposed resolutions relating to the item, and a column to nominate who was responsible for the actions arising from each item. Some agendas also include suggested allotted time periods for each item, with the aim of helping the chair and board keep the meeting moving. Also, we've seen some boards move increasingly to online board portals, where agendas are linked directly to supporting documents and are available to board members via the tablet or phone. A prompt and well-designed agenda will prepare the board members well for a meeting so that sufficient time is allowed for focused strategic decisions. Even though there is great flexibility in agenda styles, the key components of an agenda include the following. The meeting title or topic. This sets the tone for the type of meeting to be held. For example, is it a general business, strategic or annual business meeting? The date. When is the meeting to take place? The time. At what time is the meeting to start, and at what time is the meeting expected to end? The place. Where is the meeting to take place? The attendees. Who are the board members that are expected to attend the meeting? The presence by invitation. Who else will be at the meeting that might not be a board member? This is usually people like the minute secretary, sometimes the CEO, and other executive staff that may attend the meeting. Apologies. Who are the board members who have notified that they're not attending the meeting? Opportunity to confirm declarations. For example, are there any conflicts of interest that board members need to declare that occurred since the last meeting? The adoption of the prior meeting's minutes. The decision items. A list of agenda items requiring a board decision. It can be helpful to phrase these in the board papers as proposed resolutions seeking a preference for the decision by the CEO if management are recommending a specific direction to the board. The discussion items, a list of items for the board to discuss. This could include review and management receiving counsel or feedback, 
or future decisions that need a number of meetings to work through to determine a direction, or the information and processes required before the proposed decision can be formed and discussed. The information items, a list of items for the board's information. For example, are there any events, new or statutory obligations, or other business operational items that should be brought to the board's attention or interest? The next meeting. Confirm with all present the information on when and where the next meeting will be held. Close of meeting. The chair should bring the meeting to a close on time. Boards should always be looking to improve their performance. And the close of a meeting can also provide opportunity for a short evaluation of the meeting, while it's in the forefront of each director's mind. One of the main problems we're encountering time and time again are boards and board members that are just running out of energy. With ever-increasing demands on boards and increased awareness of risk and legal exposure on directors, it's also getting harder to find people willing to serve on a not-for-profit board. One of the common criticisms we hear from board members is that they're being asked to go to too many meetings, and that the meetings are also going for far too long. Time is a key 21st century currency. Gone are the days, for the most part, where volunteer and board members would happily turn up on the second Tuesday of every month to sit through a board meeting that would often end late into the night. But with a crowded agenda full of important business and legal risks to be managed, how does a board even consider a different format to board meetings, or even in reducing the number of board meetings over the year? The second governing practice that we'll explore today is the practice of designing and issuing an annual agenda. As we've already discussed, well-planned meetings are critical for an effective board. And in the same way that it's helpful to plan the individual meeting well, it's also helpful to have an overall plan for meetings across the year. The development of an annual board planner that the whole board agrees on upfront helps in a number of key ways. It enables the board members to understand the specific commitment required to attend meetings during the year and to set aside these dates well in advance. It also allows for scheduling the key matters the board needs to deal with over the course of the year. This means that the board captures the important cycles that occur over time. Things like review of policies, board training, annual budget planning and strategic planning. Finally, have an annual planner. This provides an opportunity for the board to have an important discussion around the frequency the board needs to see operational reports. Rather than following a standard agenda template every month, the board might decide it only wants to see a financial report quarterly instead of monthly. An annual planner keeps track of these important decisions, capturing both ongoing and recurring board responsibilities in an annual calendar, assists with planning at both a governance and management level. The board may decide to develop prescribed subject areas for each meeting, for example, beginning with strategic planning in January to succession planning in November. Mature boards also adopt a planner where the whole cycle of strategic planning, board and CEO appraisals and other multi-year policies and processes can be captured and scheduled. Planning a board's annual activities can not only provide time for the board to achieve all of its objectives, it also provides opportunities to spend time together, apart from being in the middle of board business. We spoke earlier about relationship-centred boards, so making sure there are opportunities to share a meal together or spending time together on a board retreat should also be recognised for their importance in nurturing those relationships and the benefit of this to overall organisational health. Key components of the annual agenda planner should include setting specific dates for the year in advance, include meetings, training, reporting and significant organisation event dates. 
set key issues or discussion review times. Where issues are recurring or ongoing, it's easy to incorporate these into the annual agenda. Any new issues arising known in advance should also be included. Specific scheduled time for board training, annual certification or other specific presentations that your board has requested as part of the annual governance cycle. Including these components in an annual agenda will increase the board members' ownership of their responsibilities and assists management in scheduling their responsibilities to the board. Just recently, I received a thank you card from a board for helping facilitate their annual board retreat and planning day. One of the board members wrote, Thank you for helping facilitate this valued time to keep us moving onwards and upwards. This is a very important era for our organisation. Getting clear air away from the normal agenda is critical for a board. An annual retreat or a planning time really does help not-for-profits lift their eyes and focus further out and helps them to think longer term in the pursuit of purpose and vision. Next, let's launch into the third governance practice, board decision making and minutes. Following the board receiving reports or other information and allowing time for discussion and reflection on a topic, the board should be ready to make a decision. Boards are likely to be making decisions on anything, ranging from establishing vision, policy and strategic plans to monitoring and reviewing financial statements, risk management and annual budgets. It's important when presenting matters to a board for a decision that it's clearly a decision for a board to make. A governance board should be concerned with governance matters rather than operational decisions that ordinarily should be left to management and monitored by the board. Sometimes the size of the organisation can blur the line between governance and management. Generally, the smaller the organisation, the easier it is for a board to get drawn into operational day-to-day -day matters. And this is okay if everyone knows and appreciates that the board is operating in this management committee collaborative style. However, it is imperative that the board members are clear on what is board business and what is not. A clear governance framework and governance policies help define the differences between the two. Let's get back to the third governance practice though, the process of making decisions as a board. The board minutes are used to record the deliberations and decisions of the board. In most cases, the board secretary will record the minutes during the meeting. It's less than ideal for the chair to take the minutes, since they are required to facilitate the meeting and be fully engaged in discussions. Generally speaking, the minutes will reflect the layout of the agenda mentioned earlier and will include the name of the organisation, the nature and type of meeting, for example, general meeting, board meeting, etc. Place, date and starting time, attendees, either physically or remotely present, and their roles, such as chair or secretary. Invited guests should be separated from voting attendees. Apologies from those who are not present. Confirmation of the presence of a quorum. That's the number of members whose presence is required before a meeting can legally take action. Minutes of the previous meeting were accepted or declined as official organisation records, and confirming them as a true and correct record of that meeting. Materials distributed before and during the meeting. Proceedings of the meeting and resolutions made. When attendees leave and re-enter the room. Abstentions from voting. Closing time. And signature of the chair. The minutes recorded should be easy to follow and are not a verbatim record of the meeting. Minutes should capture the background and discussion around decisions so that if the board looks back on decisions, they have some context to the process the board followed to arrive at each decision. The minutes should record all board resolutions. 
This document captures the result of any votes or decisions the Board makes regarding the organisation. The resolution is a formal statement of the Board's wishes. Remember, the minutes become official organisational records. If you want the Board to take a specific action or make a specific decision, then as a Board member you should propose a motion to the meeting to that effect. Once the motion is moved, the Chair will note that there is now an opportunity for another Board member to second the motion which indicates their willingness to have the proposed action or decision progress to the discussion stage. Some discussions may have already occurred prior to the motion being raised. However, following a formal moving and seconding of a formal proposed resolution, the Chair should formally ask the Board if anyone would like to address the Board in relation to the motion. Following this formal discussion period, the Chair should ask Board members to indicate who's in favour of the motion and those against. The decision is then recorded in the minutes as a resolution. There's no need to record who moved and seconded motions, but the practice is still an important one to follow for good decision making. I realise in this last section we might have lost a few of our listeners, or at least had some of you thinking, we aren't that formal. Moving and seconding motions went out of fashion ages ago. Our board is a consensus board, and our decision making is much better than that transactional approach. I want to share with you why we recommend boards keep a little bit of formality when it comes to decision making. I'm a firm believer in consensus decision making and the discernment skills of a good chair to work out when a decision is ready to be made. I also believe, however, that using a little bit of formality when it comes time to make the decision really builds a safe, robust culture in the boardroom. And here's why. Firstly, many boards that adopt a consensus process around decision-making end up with the problem of being held to ransom by the most conservative board member on an issue trying to convince them to agree to the decision. This can extend discussion time and doesn't create a clear process for the chair to follow to resolve more contentious issues. Also, sometimes a board will have a board member that's out of step with the culture or strategic direction of the board, or wants to continually revisit a previous decision that they don't agree with. Having a transparent process that allows this board member to reopen a decided issue is healthy for two good reasons. First, if there is new information or a good reason to review the decision, this provides a mechanism to achieve this. And second, if there's no consensus around reopening the decision, the board member can be satisfied that they've had the opportunity to move their motion for it to be reconsidered. If the motion fails to get a seconder, this stops the challenge quickly, transparently and safely from the board spending time going over a previous decision unnecessarily. The skill of the chair in managing relationships through these sorts of issues is paramount to ensuring there's a safe way to communicate to a board member that their view is not necessarily supported by the board as a whole. A healthy board is one where action matters. Inadequate action leads to a lack of progress and this is not in the best interest of the organisation. Through effective decision-making and well-documented minutes, the Board will easily be able to track progress. The Board Secretary should prepare the minutes soon after the meeting, whilst the meeting is fresh in their mind. The minutes should be sent to the Chair for review before distributing to each Board member. Next, we discuss the fourth good governance practice, writing good Board policy. The board should begin with prioritising a policy list. It's difficult to tackle every policy at once, so a policy list or register will help determine which policy is required to be written or updated sequentially. Board policy begins at a macro level. 
board should be trying to write policy of the broadest, far-reaching kind, leaving more detailed policy writing to management relating to the day-to-day -day operations of the not-for-profit. More on this issue shortly. What is the desired outcome of the policy or the difference it should affect? When writing board policy, the following guidelines should be followed. 1. The board secretary or a key support officer to the board should ideally coordinate the editing, formatting and consistent look or style across all policies and ensure that these are consistently applied. 2. When policies are being revised or reviewed, use track changes to track editing. This makes it easier for board members to understand where the changes are being proposed to a policy. Showing changes in a different colour in a document also achieves the same result. 3. Write each area of policies, the why, who, what and how of your not-for-profit from the broadest possible principles and only move into more detail if needed. Stop writing when you are happy to leave the policy interpretation to management. Think of a Russian babushka or nesting dolls. For those who haven't heard of these, they're wooden dolls that progressively stack inside each other, nesting, with the smallest doll maybe being as small as a part of a pinky finger, and the largest being the size of a large flower pot or vase. The board is responsible for the describing of the largest doll, the broad encompassing policy statements covering why the organisation exists, who holds authority throughout, and what the organisation will do strategically, the strategic plan. The next smaller dolls may also be described by the board, until the board is comfortable to delegate even smaller dolls to the management, writing policies that concern what the organisation is doing strategically, in terms of operational strategies out of the strategic plan, and how programs and processes are implemented throughout the organisation. 4. Ask management to write management policy in a consistent format so that it matches the style of the board's largest nesting doll. And after approval of these policies by the board, make sure that management policies are referenced to each board policy. This is the nesting aspect. All of the policies connect from the smallest to the largest of dolls and from the broadest governance policies to the most specific operational policies and processes. In this way, board members can pick up a board policy and see what management policies have also been developed to provide further policy direction or detail. This will also assist with monitoring compliance to policy and reviewing policy, as all organisational policy, whether board or management initiated, will be captured under board policy areas. 5. Try to be as concise or brief as possible and use plain language. Most policies should be able to be kept to one page or less, and many should only be a paragraph. Don't be concerned about the white space left on a page, or be tempted to fill it. 6. Try to avoid using people's names and other current language if possible, so that the risk of a policy losing its currency is minimised until when next reviewed. Policies will be reviewed on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on the policy. Most policies won't need reviewing yearly and some only every two or three years. The maximum time we recommend between reviews of a policy is three years. 7. Make sure you date the policy with the date it was created or the date it was last revised. 8. Make a clear distinction between policy, usually a much shorter statement, and guidelines, using headings in your policy template to make this distinction clearly. Board policy will contain very little by way of guidelines. This will be more prevalent in management policies. 9. Don't repeat policies that are already covered in other documents, such as the constitution or bylaws of the organisation. 10. 
There's nothing wrong with management assisting the board in drafting board policy. As long as the board engages actively with the draft, then determines and approves its own policy through a healthy process involving full board deliberation and discussion. Before writing policy, consider its format. All organisation policy should follow a standard format to ensure consistency. Look first to your organisation's historical policies. Does this format provide a sufficient template to use? Or is an update required? When deciding on the policy template, here are some common components to consider. A policy number. Numbering policies irrespective of if there are draft, new or revised policies. Effective and revised dates. These dates are determined by the board. The policy title. The title should capture the content of the policy. The purpose. A brief statement explaining the purpose of the policy. Any additional authority. List statute, regulation or other relevant authority imposing the policy. The scope. For whom is it to be produced for? To who or what does the policy apply? For example, all staff or all bank transactions. The responsible party. Who will be responsible for administering this policy? A method of contact should also be noted. Definitions. Unique terms relevant to a specific field. Related policy. What are the related policies to the policy? A list of related management policies to a governance policy, or vice versa. Writing policies is not usually something boards like spending time doing. It seems like such dry work, and often we hear that the policies end up on the shelf, going stale, and are not really used in the organisation anyway. Long-winded policies become cumbersome to work with, and get out of date really quickly. But a well-written set of policies can really help an organisation stay healthy in its governance and management. We've seen even very large not-for-profits with quite small board governance and policy handbooks when they use the principles outlined in this session. In some cases, the boards have engaged us to work with them, to start afresh, and to write policies from a fresh template, utilising our community governance templates. In this way, boards are able to renovate their policy making over a short time and have a complete working set of governance policies, creating a framework under which management operation policies can be organised. Also, with a good policy framework in place, boards can perform their critical compliance role of monitoring operational compliance. There's a much higher success rate for boards with good policies in place being able to monitor the operational activities of the not-for-profit against its own policies and many boards are utilising online software to assist compliance and policy monitoring work, thereby streamlining this important role even further. Good governance policies should be in place to define the board's role and responsibilities. Policies should incorporate the job description of the board, define the authority and role of the board chair, outline the processes the board will follow, Set strategic direction for the board and the organisation. The strategic plan is a form of board policy. And finally, set out how the board is to be held accountable through board appraisal and accountability back to the moral owners. In following writing good policy, we now look at good governance practice number five, effective meetings. We spoke earlier of the importance of the chair and CEO contributing to prepare the agenda in consultation with each other and providing opportunity for all board members to provide input into this process. We also noted the importance of early distribution of the agenda and board papers to allow board members to prepare for the meeting. 
We assume that everyone involved has done their homework in between meetings and come prepared for a productive meeting. The room utilised for the meeting should be considered for its purpose, that is, how well is it going to contribute to an effective meeting. Here are some things you'll need to consider. Is there sufficient seating and tables available for all present? Is the room sufficiently cool or warm enough to keep all attending comfortable? Is the chair positioned where they're visible and can be easily heard? In this digital age, is there provision to power devices or for members to attend the meeting remotely where necessary? Do you need to be strategic in seating those attending the meeting? For example, are there members or external consultants who will need to be positioned to present materials? Are there members who don't often see eye to eye? Try sitting them next to each other. It's harder for them to argue that way. Are there any factors like table shape, chair comfort or lack of comfort that are distractions to the meeting process? Is ambient noise an issue from passing traffic or other sounds? There's no ideal time for the length of a board meeting, except to say that if you're running meetings routinely for more than three to four hours, you might be wearing down your board members or finding it hard to find board members. Boards that are local might meet for shorter periods more frequently. However, national or international boards might meet for longer periods, since they may only get together for a few meetings during the year. It should be as long as it takes to get the board's work done. The board should be focused on the tasks that only the board can do. It's the chair's role to adhere to the agenda and to remain focused on work that belongs to the board. Providing a regular time on the agenda for in-camera time is also helpful to an effective meeting. In-camera is a Latin term that in a meeting context means in private session. Sometimes this might also be called a closed meeting or director's meeting. This generally refers to a time during the meeting when only board members are present. This disqualifies the CEO, management staff and other parties from the session. Sensitive issues can be handled during this session providing confidentiality, a mechanism for board independence and oversight. It can also serve to enhance the relationships among board members and the CEO. The role of the chair in facilitating a meeting contributes significantly to enabling a board to achieve more in a limited time. The practical reality is that the success of a board can rise or fall on the quality of this position as the chair is charged with developing and maintaining healthy board process and culture. The board chair has all the responsibilities of the other members of the board. The chair acts as the link between the board and the executive and between the board and the moral owners. The chair is responsible for leadership of the board's governance and for the efficient organisation and conduct of the board's functioning. The chair's role has been described as first among equals and should reflect a servant leadership style. The chair should facilitate the effective contribution of all board members and promote constructive and respectful relations between board members and between board and management. Sometimes this means that the chair may not have as much input on topics as they may like, lest they're perceived to be leading the board or dominating proceedings excessively. It's the chairman's self-indulgence that is the greatest single barrier to the success of a meeting. His first duty then is to be aware of the temptation and of the dangers of yielding to it. The clearest of the danger signals is hearing himself talk a lot during a discussion. If the chairman is to make sure the meeting achieves valuable objectives, he will be more effective seeing himself as the servant of the group rather than its master. His true source of authority with the members is the strength of his perceived commitment to their combined objective. 
This quote from Anthony Jay's article, How to Run a Meeting, published by the Harvard Business Review, is spot on. The best chairs lead the board with strong humility, creating an environment of safety where robust discussion is encouraged. Always focusing on the issue from the perspective of what's best for the organisation and never allowing board members to personalise disagreement in statements made in a board meeting. The same holds true for board members as for sports players. Play the ball, not the person. So you can surmise from what we've discussed that for an effective meeting, the board needs to be operating with a high degree of trust between members and between board and management in order to be productive. In order to build trust in your board, there must be truth-telling, relationship, understanding, service, teamwork. Sometimes the board chair has to work through difficult issues in meetings and sometimes difficult people. Here are some tips on managing difficult meetings. Ask open-ended questions. What results do you want to achieve in order to help another member identify their own solutions to a problem? Ask for specifics and take notes. Ask an angry person to give details about why they're upset. It may calm them down. Use writing as an effective communication tool. It will help you present your points in an orderly fashion and gives people something to take away. Turn us and them into we. Highlight similarities between you and the other board members. Suggest you do things cooperatively. Let's find the information together, for example. Listen attentively and acknowledge. Even if someone is blowing off steam, it may provide you with insight into the problem. Restate. Make sure you understand what they're saying. Reflect. Offer an empathetic response that verifies the person's feelings. Reframe. Ask them what's going on, what they're thinking, or why they took a particular action. This helps people feel heard and understood. Establish realistic expectations. Help others understand that even though they're frustrated, it isn't the result of an unfair or arbitrary action. Use peer pressure. Don't pressure people to see things your way, but rather make them responsible for their own actions. Remind them of the consequences of angry tirades and remind them if they're talking too often or too long. Make sure everyone in the meeting gets to have a say on issues, not just the quickest off the mark or those who speak the loudest. This may include polling each board member individually in the room as to their thoughts. Take time in making final decisions, especially if they're difficult ones. Don't rush them, but at the same time, you do need to make an actual decision. We've come now to our final and sixth good governance practice, board papers and portals. We've previously discussed the importance of board members receiving the agenda and necessary material in advance of the meeting to allow them time to thoroughly read and respond to if necessary. This preparation promotes careful decision-making and a more productive meeting. A board can control the information it receives. Remember, a lack of information and, at the other end of the scale, information overload are not conducive to board discussion and decisions. All the board papers should be clear, easy to follow and easy to find. The board is responsible for setting the expectations and providing directions to management on the content of reports, the format of reports, the timing of reports, the amount of information provided to ensure management had the processes and controls to ensure the reliability of the information and to set KPIs for management to report against. 
Board papers or a board pack will typically include the following components. An agenda, minutes of the previous meeting, supporting documents to submissions requiring decisions, the CEO's report, operational report, financial reports, and any major correspondence. Indexing the agenda is an effective way to cross-reference items on the agenda, making them identifiable with items in the board papers and easy to find. There are a few things to consider when deciding on delivering board papers. It's common practice to deliver papers electronically. Whilst delivering the papers electronically can be an efficient use of time and investment, it's important to find and establish a secure, consistent system. There are many methods of achieving this through email or a board portal, and with new applications coming on the market all the time. However, before considering a journey to online board portals, boards should first stop and consider, do all members have sufficient access to the technology required to receive the board papers? What's the security and privacy of the nominated system? Consider the sending of the information as well as the security of access to and storage of the information at the recipient's end. Are there specific laws, such as international data breach laws, that require storage within the country, or other privacy requirements or concerns that need to be resolved? The format of the papers, for example, the font size, diagrams and tables, are they easy to read? Well, that brings us to the end of this Governance Ideas presentation. For more information on governance, management, leadership or finance ideas, visit us at resolve.consulting.com.